0: Everyone's rightly nervous when the pastor has two weeks to work on a message. I've been working on this one for a long time. I hesitantly say this is one of my favorite passages in all of Mark. And it's significant here at at the center of this story. I hesitantly say that because it is raw and unfiltered. It's emotional and and poignant if we allow ourselves to enter into it. But its relevance and relatability, I think, is gripping for us. The desperation of a father for his child. Any parent can immediately relate to that. But anyone who has suffered illness or oppression, who has struggled, can relate to this passage. Anyone who has prayed for God to show up, to intervene, to heal, to deliver, whether personally or on behalf of a loved one, can relate to this passage. Anyone who has struggled to sense God, has wondered if their faith is enough, has questioned or doubted at times, can relate to this passage. So isn't that all of us now? Mark has been progressively revealing the reality of the kingdom of God. It's beautiful, it's multifaceted, it's often unexpected. He continues to Highlight these encounters, these episodes to do just that, to reveal the kingdom in its surprising way. We again see that those who should have been anticipating the kingdom, the, the, the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they should have been expecting the coming Messiah and receive, been the first in line to receive and to follow. They reject and deny. Those closest to Jesus, even his own disciples, who are beginning to believe, we see, and beginning to receive and have given all to follow this Jesus, continue to struggle to fully grasp it and see it. They're stumbling to believe. And yet some fully receive Jesus and his message. And it seems to be the least likely ones, the last and the least. That's certainly who Mark is highlighting. Their faith stands sometimes in contrast or juxtaposition to what should be the faith of these other these others who knew so much of the scriptures and God's story and yet failed to believe, these others continue to rise up as somewhat unexpected heroes of faith in these moments uh, that they are responding to Jesus. And the way that Mark does that by juxtaposing the faith of the unlikely ones makes the reader, makes us ask, so who am I in the story? How do I enter in? And humbly. Often and in conviction we say, I'm quite a bit like those disciples or I'm quite a bit even like the Pharisees at times. God, make me more like the, the last and the least to receive you in your kingdom. Certainly some of us can easily resonate and that brings incredible hope to us all that we have felt removed or distant or unable to be loved by God the Father. And this story again reminds us of his incredible love and compassion for all people. Because we're receiving this corporately today, would you ask with me as we unpack some of this story, who are we collectively? As I wrote this, and, and I wrote this draft in a, about 90 minutes, and so it just flowed, and then as I'm reviewing it, I, I wonder, I think in some, of, in some way this is a personal lament for the state of the Western church. So as you hear me, understand that this is not specifically, primarily for us in this room, but for us collectively. Where we need to receive it then corporately here, may it be so. Where we then need to receive it individually, also may it be so. But I recognize that. And so please hold that in mind as you hear some of these, which I believe are Are strong words from a posture and a heart of lament for the state of the church today. So Jesus has been up on the mountain. That was the last passage we looked at in his transfiguration, glowing in glory, right? The the Spirit of God or God Himself descends in the cloud. He speaks, This is my Son. I'm well pleased with Him. Listen to Him as if people haven't been listening to him or receiving him. But that moment ends, and Jesus comes down the mountain to the valley, and that contrast is a stark one from the glory of God, the presence, the appearance, however that happened, the appearance of Moses and Elijah, while Peter, James, and John were there to see it. And certainly the holiness of that moment, they wanted to dwell there, but that ends in an instant, and Jesus comes down, and that's meant to reveal One, on the mountain, the mountaintop is like the presence of God, distant from humanity. But Jesus comes down to humanity. Jesus descends. He comes into the valleys. He comes to the place of desperation. He comes to meet the needs of families. He offers deliverance and healing. He confronts evil and triumphs. He invites people to grow in faith and to walk in the kingdom. This is the gospel. This is the picture of the gospel from the mountain to the valley. Jesus, the mediator, the bridge, the Emmanuel, God with us, the tabernacle, the light of the world. So this this extended passage is such a picture of the gospel. And the contrast that we see, I think, are striking as I've highlighted a few. The disciples and the teachers of the law are disputing. The the language there is it's a sharp debate, a dispute, and they're consumed by it. Perhaps it is because of the inability of the disciples to confront this evil spirit. And so now they're debating over the, the theological implications, maybe even more so than the practical ones, as this father in their midst is now unsettled, still desperate, but now unsettled that there's any hope Maybe this is the last hope for his child. And these followers of Jesus, who rumor had it, were able to drive out evil spirits, could not help him. It seems that they're so consumed with the debate of why the disciples and the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, that they don't even notice when Jesus returns to their midst. Meanwhile, the crowds flock to him. So there's a contrast. These crowds are waiting for Jesus looking for him. And when they see him, they respond in wonder and amazement. Meanwhile, the disciples and the Pharisees are arguing to a point of they don't even recognize Jesus in their midst. As we ask that question, who are we? Here's a practical application. What consumes us? Do our theological or doctrinal debates distract us from the very presence and power of Jesus in our midst? Rather than looking and seeking for his help and his wisdom, we seek to win an argument and a debate. Today, often, tragically, it's in the digital arena. I wrote this a couple weeks ago. I think it was in response to something specific, but I would guess you can resonate if you're at all in the social media world. We debate and bicker and fight even amongst God's people Hiding behind shields of glass and plastic, fighting battles with our fingers, with taps and swipes. Jesus had to interrupt them to get their attention. What are you arguing about? As if he didn't know the answer. How long has Jesus been trying to get the attention of his church? What are you arguing about? Why are you fighting? Are there not hurting families and oppressed peoples in your very midst? Do you even see them? You've tied your own hands from actually doing the work of the kingdom. If we make this personal to our community, who are the hurting, the broken, the desperate, the oppressed in our midst? And do we see them? Are we with them? Jesus has sent us to extend his kingdom to recognize his presence with us to heal, to deliver, to confront evil, to stand for righteousness and justice, to extend hope and grace and mercy, to alleviate suffering, to bring care to the desperate. Jesus, get our attention. Speak to us. Rebuke us where necessary. Humble, heal, deliver, we pray. Now, interesting that neither the disciples nor the teachers answer Jesus. And we wonder, do they even hear him? Because his question is directed at them. What are you arguing about? The father answers. Perhaps he's so desperate for Jesus and his presence that there's not room for them to respond. Perhaps the deaf and mute spirit, as it is named, that is controlling this boy is extending its influence to deafen the ears of his disciples and to deaden their tongues. If we would listen to the hearts and cries of the hurting amongst us, not only will we find opportunities to minister, we would find Jesus. As an aside, one of the common laments that I hear as I meet with people, as I counsel or disciple or encourage or just meet in friendship and those Lines are sometimes blurry. Is the lament of, I feel distant from God. I don't feel that He's near. I'm going through these motions, I'm doing these things, but I feel far from Him. And that while there may be many reasons for that, I often wonder, and maybe sometimes ask, depending on the relationship, when was the last time you were with the hurting, the broken, the desperate, the marginalized? And while there's many reasons to feel distant from from God, is it possible that it's because of the lack of our presence with the hurting and the broken? Because I do know that God is there, that Jesus is there with them as we pursue in the way that he does. The father describes the situation, his son suffering, and that's certainly poignant. Jesus answers, so that all can hear, O unbelieving generation, verse 19, How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Again, the humanity of Jesus, Mark highlights, maybe more so than any of the other gospel writers. We see some of this raw emotion of Jesus. I believe this is clearly directed at the disciples and maybe a little bit at the Jewish leaders who also should have been showing compassion to help this man to intervene, even if unable to confront the spirit. But they're over to the side debating and arguing. While this father is still in his desperation with no help. The father clearly had faith. He had belief. He came to Jesus, even if it was his last and desperate attempt. And we can probably resonate with that. At times, we try everything else before coming to Jesus for healing and for help. But regardless, he's here. He's seeking. And his faith, however strong or small it was, is probably shaken yet again. Because remember that the disciples had been given authority over evil spirits. And we saw this in in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, and then verse 12. Jesus called his 12 to them, sent them out two by two, gave them authority over evil spirits, and they went out and preached, and they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. They had had ministry success and the power and the authority of Jesus. They'd experienced it themselves and not too long before this moment. So you can just imagine the scene. This father comes. This boy is clearly oppressed. The father is desperate. They've seen this before. Can you help me? Where is Jesus? Oh, Jesus is not here right now. We don't know when he's coming back. We think he's coming back. But yes, we can help you. Bring the boy to us. We've done this before. We've seen this before. And yet they are unable to drive out this spirit. Maybe not only his faith, the father's faith was shaken, but maybe the disciples' faith as well. What is going on? Has our authority in Jesus run out? Did we say the wrong thing? And probably thus the reason for the debate and the argument and the concern and the wonder, where is Jesus to come and to help? this next application for who are we, and I think this is probably more of the collective we for the church, are we relying simply on previous training or previous experience only when it comes to ministering to the needs of the hurting or the lost amongst us? Because those former ways will not necessarily serve in these present days. Our world has changed so much, if you haven't noticed. Uh, in 20 years, let's take, let's take 20 years. And I'm, I can't unpack that today, but I hope there's an understanding if you've lived those, around those 20 years, just the radical amount of change in our world, the ways that we interact and are connected, the ways that we learn, the ways that we work. So much has changed. And in these last 20 months, I think it's been microwaved You've likely experienced that. If you've felt any sense of unsettledness about life and culture and society and direction and future, you're not alone. The enemy would like to make us think we're alone. We're the ones unsettled. Everyone else is fine. You're not. We're not. This is, we are deeply unsettled by the massive transition and change that is happening in our world, largely digitally. That is happening. We're trying to figure out how to live in this new digital age. That would be a whole series of sermons or or, or talks, and I think there's some fantastic resources out there that I would love to connect you with. But as we recognize this shift, it means the strategies, the methods, the tools of what once worked, and that probably goes for anything, but specifically when we're talking about ministering to the needs of hurting, communicating the message of the gospel to the lost or to those who have not heard or received, that those methods need to be rethought and may either not only be ineffective as they once were, but may actually be detrimental to the work of kingdom extension in the future. And I wish I had a whole lot more answers. And so does everybody. The one answer I know is to come before Jesus in prayer. And that's where the rest of this passage goes. The disciples did not pray. Can you, can you believe that? They did not pray because at the end they say, "Why?" Could Jesus? Jesus drives out the evil spirit, and they ask him, "Why couldn't we drive it out?" So they're perplexed. Insert any kind of question you have about God's presence in the world right now, as you seek Him for His power, His authority to work in and through you to make a difference, to see results, and it seems ineffective. God, why? Where? How? What did we miss? Why couldn't we do that? Why are we so ineffective? Now this one, this spirit only comes out through prayer. Then again, like so often we see in the scriptures, the statements of Jesus, the answers of Jesus bring up even more questions. Are you saying that there's multiple spirits that we're supposed to discern, supposed to know, and then supposed to interact with them differently or drive them out differently? How could we possibly know that? How could we pray that? I'm sure the disciples were asking those kinds of questions. Maybe on the road, they got to unpack that further. We're left wondering, and sometimes floundering, in how to interact or engage the the forces of evil in our world. Sometimes ignoring them altogether, pretending they don't exist. That must have just been in the New Testament time. It certainly was heightened then, it seemed, as the kingdom came. So where are they now? But if you are not sensing the spirit of evil or oppression in this world to enslave or to trap, to work against, that's the Satan is the adversary of the kingdom, to work against joy, peace, love, grace, compassion, mercy, freedom. We're not sensing that there's something more at work than we are truly ignorant. And how yet do we discern How yet do we interact and and rebuke these evil spirits and the authority of Jesus given to all of his disciples? Not our own authority. All authority was given to Jesus. And he said, I give it to you. Now go and make disciples. Doing the work of the kingdom, which would have been the very same. Standing and confronting evil. Bringing healing. Bringing the full message of the gospel. Teaching people to obey. Not just to know The truths about God, but to obey, to walk with, and to follow God. So all questions come up. Certainly the disciples would have asked them, what kind of prayer is Jesus referring to if we sense that this kind of spirit of the age, maybe even specifically, the spirit that is, that brings deafness and muteness. If we do not see the oppression of that spirit today, that people seem unable or unwilling to hear to listen to one another, unable or unwilling to speak with patience and compassion and mercy today. That evil oppression is amongst us and it's going to destroy us. It's going to destroy the church if we do not rebuke it and drive it out and in repentance come before our God in prayer. So what kind of prayer is Jesus talking about? Because you noticed, didn't you, that Jesus doesn't pray here. Bring the boy to me. And he rebuked it and drove it out. Did we miss the prayer? I believe this is not when Jesus says, by prayer, this spirit is driven out. He's not meaning a prayer that could be prayed in that moment that he is speaking of a lifestyle of prayer, that he has been modeling for the disciples. Is it possible that the disciples have still not learned how to pray, how to hear from God and respond to his voice? Have we? Jesus models the lifestyle of prayer. He's up early in the morning to pray, to commune with God. He spent 40 days praying and fasting to prepare for his ministry. He prayed again when selecting the 12, seeking the guidance of the Father and the Holy Spirit. He made it his regular rhythm and habit to break away into the Eremon, as we've seen, the, the wilderness space, to draw near to his Father. He models a lifestyle of prayer. And that's what I believe he's referring to. This spirit that is so entrenched, that seems to so control this boy and some other spirits likely will only come out by a lifestyle of prayer, of communion with God. We see that those are essentially synonymous. Prayer for Jesus was communion and closeness to God. It was much less about the words being said or declared than the right relationship being fostered and developed. Who are we? Are we praying ones? And what does the Father pray that could teach us so much? Because sometimes we may stumble upon how to pray and what to pray. And certainly there's many good guides throughout the Scripture. When Jesus taught the famous Lord's Prayer, it was because his disciples asked him, teach us to pray. It wasn't meant to be a rote prayer. It was meant to be a guide for how to pray. Not that reciting it or speaking it or memorizing it is a raw. I do it daily. (laughs) But I let it inspire other prayers and lead me to other prayers. But I think the prayer of this Father, because I'm sure many of you would lament that we are not a praying people and likely personally you would say, I need to grow in this discipline probably more than any other. And I bet... Even those that I would consider and probably amongst us today, the prayer warriors amongst us, to use a a cliche term, are the ones that probably believe they need to grow most in this discipline. So there is something about prayer that is always longing, that is always needing to develop and to grow more and more. Do we pray as honest and real and raw at times that this Father models for us? Beginning with, if you can do anything... Have compassion, have pity, and help us. That demonstrates that his faith probably has been shaken to a degree. I thought your disciples, they said they could, now they can't if you can do anything. If I can, all is possible for the one who believes. Was his faith enough? I believe. Help me in my unbelief. How honest and real. I think so often we try to clean up our prayers. I know I do this. Kind of scrub them down and so that they're, 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 they're better, they're righter, they're, they're, they're more accurate before the Lord rather than simply raw and unfiltered. He knows it anyway. To bring before him even my doubts or my fears or my uncertainties. And we are invited to do so through the model of this father. Because it doesn't matter how, how little his faith was. Jesus answers it and heals and delivers and gives him his boy fully back. It's not the measure of our faith that truly matters, but the object of our faith, where we place it, I have just this much left. Now, interesting, that, that phrase could also be translated, to the one who is faithful, all is possible. Because sometimes I think we, we just assume that, that faith is a, a mental assent. Believing the right things and believing them more and more with less and less doubt. When faithfulness is really what's modeled throughout the scriptures. Sometimes, and perhaps most of the time, walking a life of faithfulness is easier than a life of faith, of belief. We are invited to bring our doubts, to bring our uncertainties. But we're invited to come. And what if we would simply pray in that desperate way? Like the Father, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus meets us there in that place every time. It may seem like a small prayer, but it's a powerful one. And if we see the evil that's in our world, that's in our midst even, and we want to see that evil driven out, and the victory of Jesus to come, it may take much less than we think. What could I say? How could I do it? You know, the most important thing I'm I'm convinced about prayer is is not the specific words that are said. The words can be important. And again, we have these guides. And it's a good place to begin the prayers of the faithful, the saints throughout the ages, not just in Scripture, but beyond. How else could we learn to pray if we do not listen and hear from others who have been growing in this discipline of prayer, but it's not just the words. It's not the words that are the most important. It's not the posture that's the most important. We can imagine this father on his knees. I just see him there on his knees, and my guess is that many times in your life, that's the only kind of posture you could take before the Lord on your knees or on your face or on your bed. That posture sometimes reveals where our heart is and our desperation, but it's not primarily about posture or about words. It's not primarily about passion or expressing emotion, although at times that's all we can express is emotion, and that would be right. But the most important thing about prayer and a life of prayer is presence, is presence. Do we show up and pray? Are we present in full attention and intention? Are we carving out? Are we up early in the morning to commune with God? We may not know what to say at all or feel like we're bumbling along in our words. Fine, be silent. Be before your God. Listen and hear. Drive out the mute and deaf spirit in the authority of Jesus that you could hear and commune with God. Are we setting rhythms in our life and through our day to pause to pray? It may just be five minutes, it doesn't have to be a whole lunch hour, although at times I think that's appropriate but simply to carve out those rhythms to pray, to hear, to commune with God regularly throughout our day. When we have opportunity to gather with others and pray, are we present or are we absent? Living a life of prayer will be day by day, but that discipline will lead to power and to authority we may still be praying the very simple prayers that we see in Scripture, but the attitude and the heart, I believe, will move us. So what is the call? And I'm, conf- I'm conflicted. I, I think, you, I hope you would sense the, the lament and that I'm sad for the anemic and impotence within the followers of Jesus today, at least in the Western world. If it's not pandemic, it's at least endemic. And I wonder if, I really actually don't wonder, I believe that it is primarily the lack or the inability, the ignorance, the undisciplinedness, probably add a a new word, I hope not the unwillingness to pray. And personally convicted that as a leader or as a pastor, have I not modeled this? Have I not lived this life of prayer? Where do I need to grow? It begins with each one of us. Nor can we manufacture desperation. What will it take to bring us collectively to a place of desperation, calling out upon the presence of God? That we would not move from this place without Him, that He must show up to heal, to deliver, to be the God of the rescue. (laughs) that we've sung to, to be present and to work? Are we waiting for that kind of desperation? And the current crisis of evil and oppression, our world is not enough to move us and stir us? Perhaps we are not. Perhaps we are so insulated from those places of pain and desperation and hurt that we do not pray in the same way. So we cannot create that. I cannot create that. And when I say I'm, I'm torn and I'm hesitant to even speak this way, because the last thing we want is a response of guilt or yes, yes, we must pray, we must do better. That is the la- we are not about trying harder. If that's the way we walk out of any time we gather to hear God's word, we can walk out with conviction, but that conviction comes with encouragement and hope when it's the Holy Spirit. And may it be, I hope that's all that you receive is conviction that stirs with the hope to walk in this present life of prayer in the days to come. Knowing it will be a journey and knowing at times it will be a struggle. And that is what it means. We talk about spiritual warfare. It's not a term that shows up in in, in Scripture. But struggle against the evil authorities does. Our struggle is not against the flesh and blood. There is an enemy at work. And we are meant in the authority of Jesus with a lifestyle of prayer and communion with God to have victory over the evil spirit in this realm. All I'm certain of is that if God's church will not pray like this, the enemy remains in power. So God, teach us to pray. That's a rather abrupt ending. But let's pray. In fact, let's pray for the next 20 minutes. I hope you know we do that every time we gather. That's what these songs are. They're sung prayers. I hope you engage them that way. Sometimes we can sing at the top of our our lungs. It feels right. It feels good, whether it's a praise or a lament. At other times, the words get choked in our throat, and that's okay. We can pray them from our heart with the community of God as we pray for his presence And as we pray for his strength to be with us in the days to come as he is with us now. God, teach us to pray. And may it be, God, a hunger and a thirst, a holy desperation, holy desperation, not suffering and pain that drives us to the prayers of this Father, to the prayers of deliverance for our loved ones. For those in our community who are oppressed and hurting and suffering, ensnared and enslaved by the evil spirit, we rebuke and drive out this spirit in the authority of Jesus, of Nazareth, our God. We drive out the spirit of muteness, of deafness, where we have been unable to hear your words or unable to hear one another or unable to speak your hope your peace your goodness with compassion and mercy and grace we drive out this spirit may it begin with us with these we are the least of these and you've come to us with your presence teach us to pray Jesus, teach us to pray as you did. You both modeled it and revealed and left it to us in words. Teach us the heart and the life of prayer that hungers and thirsts for more of you. Make us desperate, Lord, we humbly pray. As we sing these prayers and commune with you and respond To your conviction, I pray, alone, the enemy has no room for guilt, your spirit brings hope and encouragement that the growth of communion, of life with you, is in some ways just beginning for us, and we get to walk with you in the days, and we pray, weeks, months, and years ahead. Do a mighty work in our midst, in and through your church, for the glory of your kingdom to be known forever and ever. Amen.